Let me read that text. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory in his disciples put their faith in Him. Well, we've had a number of firsts here in the Gospel of John. Uh, Recently, in John chapter 1, we had the first appearance of Jesus within the Gospel. Uh, John the Baptist was baptizing at the Jordan River, and Jesus came toward him. He, He suddenly appears within the narrative, and John the Baptist points and says, "'Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.'" And then last Sunday, uh, Pete preached on the calling of the first disciples. We saw the first people come together to follow and uh, learn from Christ. And today we have another first. We have Jesus' very first miracle, or as uh, John would call it, Jesus' first sign. And at one level, it's a really simple story. It's like most miracle stories in the Gospels. Most miracle stories have three parts. There's the problem something is wrong. There's the miracle that fixes the problem. And then the third part of the miracle story is the response of some people who see the miracle. So, so it's a really simple kind of structure, problem, miracle, response. And we see it here. And it, at one level, you can read the story and say, okay, Jesus did a miracle, didn't have wine. He gave him wine. And then there was the response some of his his disciples believe. And you say, okay, well, all right, that's his first miracle. Let's move on to the next story. But if you slow down and kind of read the story closely, I think certain questions emerge from the story that that beg further investigation and thought. There's some weird things, some strange things, some kind of ambiguous things taking place in each of those three movements that that if you take the time to kind of ask the questions and probe a little more deeply, I think we discover some things about Jesus that that are sort of embedded within this story that you might miss if you just kind of read over it as, Jesus, turn water to wine. Next story, please. So so I'd like us to just slow down a little bit this morning. And as we continue to think about uh, the main thrust of the Gospel of John, which is this is Jesus, this is who he is, and let's just think about who Christ is by slowing down on each of those three movements of the story. So let's start with the problem, which is they were out of wine. 
And, and in each of these movements, I want to ask a further question. And here's the further question I want to ask in the first movement, the, the, uh, the crisis of having no wine. Why does Jesus talk to his mom the way he does? All right, so let's look at the story. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So here's this wedding going on. And when you hear wedding, you need to think wedding reception because the wedding took place in the midst of a huge party. And you need to also think week-long wedding reception. This feast could go on for a whole week. It was just a huge sort of community event. So there's this wedding taking place, this wedding feast. Uh, It's in Cana, which is about uh, less than 10 miles north of Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. So it's, it's near the place where Jesus spent uh, his boyhood and his adulthood, as far as, as we can tell from the Gospels. And the wine has run out, which uh, could have had some disastrous social consequences for the groom's family. This could have been a, a public disgrace. You, you know, you invite all these people, you have this big party, and then the wine runs out. Uh, you know, and it, so it could have been humiliating. It could have been a public dishonor to the family. And so Jesus' mother goes to him and says, look, they, they have no more wine. You know, you wonder why did Jesus' mother tell Jesus? I mean, why was that their problem? And people have hypothesized. Uh, it, it could be that this was a, a close family member who was at this wedding. You know, Cana was so close to Nazareth, it could have been that this was close or, or extended family, maybe close friends or something like that. Uh, it could be people have hypothesized that, that maybe at this point in Jesus' life, Joseph uh, the, the husband of Mary had died. You know, he doesn't appear in any of these stories. And so it could be that, you know, the mother is concerned for the family's reputation, and so she goes to the eldest son because he's the, in charge of the family now and says, look, you know, could you take care of this, please? So, you know, that's a possible reconstruction. It's, it's kind of hypothetical. But for whatever reason, Jesus' mother goes to her son and I suppose that's not hard to understand, a mom going to her son saying, would you do something about this? Take care of this? But here's the interesting thing, is Jesus' response to his mother. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. How would you characterize his response to his mother? What's the kind of tonal quality to that response. You know, what, what kind of words would you use? I, I mean, words that come to my mind are uh, formal, detached, distant. You might say unconcerned. You, you know, it's not, it's not warm. It doesn't feel kind of caring and involved. It's, it's kind of a, a, a bit of a Heisman, you know, the stiff arm, like, look, this is not my thing. Uh, you know, he calls her dear woman. He doesn't call her mom or mommy dearest or mom or anything like that or Mary, mother of God or blessed Mary. He just says, dear woman. Uh, in fact, in Greek, it's not even dear woman. It's just woman. Woman? You know? Which in English sounds a little more snotty. Uh, in Greek, to, to say woman could be like saying madam, miss. You know, so, so it's, it, it's kind of polite, perhaps, but it's definitely not familial. 
It's definitely not uh, like tender. It's, it's sort of, <clears throat> madam, I'm sorry. You know, it's like what the maitre d' would say at a snooty restaurant. <clears throat> madam, uh, I'm sorry, you can't do that here kind of a thing. It, it just has that vibe to it. And then as if that wasn't sort of distancing enough, he then says, why do you involve me? Some translations say, what, do you, uh, what, what does this have to do with me? Um, and and all the different English translations are wrestling with the Greek, which is kind of, it literally in Greek is, woman, what to you and to me? That's the Greek phrase. And it's actually kind of a Hebraism, a Hebraic sort of d- uh, construction. And it's tough to translate exactly into English, but it's kind of like, what does this have to do with you and me? What do you and I have to do with each other? What, what is this situation? How is it in any way connect us in some kind of responsibility to each other. This has nothing to do with me and you, and there is no obligation between us here. Again, it's, so however you would translate it into English, it's not a, a term of concern and, and interest, which again is just strange. It's like, why is he talking to his mom like this? Why is he so unconcerned? I mean, if someone came to you at a party and said, Oh, the, the hostess of the party, she spilled a whole glass. Someone bumped her and she spilled a whole glass of wine on her white, you know, outfit she bought for the party. Even if you didn't care, you would still, like, pretend. Oh, my goodness. Wow, that's so bummer. You know? But Jesus doesn't play games. He's like, what to you and to me, woman? It's not my business. Why is he reacting that way? And I think we get a a little clue in the next phrase. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. What is he talking about? What time? Uh, The the, the Greek word again, not trying to overdo it with the Greek this morning, but it's just interesting. In Greek, it's my hour has not yet come. What is he talking about? You know, as you go through the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about his hour a lot. My hour is coming. My hour has not yet come. They tried to grab him, but they couldn't grab him because his hour had not yet come. It's like you get this, this theme that's going to start building in John. Uh, you know, what, what is his hour? And why, you know, where is it? Why hasn't it come yet? Well, let me just kind of cut to the chase. His hour is the hour of his suffering on the cross for us. Look at John chapter 13. If his hour has not yet come, well, when does it come? It comes in John chapter 13. Verse 1 says, It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that his time, the time had come, literally, the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So at John chapter 13, the hour finally comes. And we know what's in John chapter 13. It's the Last Supper, which leads to the Garden of Gethsemane, which leads to the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion and the death and the burial and eventually the resurrection of Jesus. So that's his hour. So it's not a literal 60-minute hour, but it's an hour in the sense of the moment, the time. Hence the translation, my time has not yet come. But, but it's, it's a specific time. So let's kind of pull this all together now, going back to John chapter 2. What is going on here is I think that Jesus, with his public ministry launched at his baptism, has now pivoted toward the cross. 
So for the last 20 whatever years, he has been Jesus, the eldest son of Mary and Joseph, the good son, the faithful boy of Nazareth, perhaps the carpenter's apprentice, we don't know. But whatever he was doing, whatever his life was up to that point, it's like a timer went off or something happened, and his mission is now launched. And so the purpose for which he came into the world is now activated. It's like a little light went off, you know, beep, 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 and suddenly it's time. He's baptized. The Holy Spirit has descended on him. He's been anointed the king, and now he turns. And from this point on in the Gospel of John, he is marching to the cross. He's going to the cross. It is always before him. In every story in John, in every teaching, in every miracle, in every confrontation, he has always got the cross in view. Because that is why he came into the world, is to die for sins. You know, John starts the gospel with John the Baptist seeing Jesus. And what again, what does he say? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so from that point on, Jesus is the Lamb walking to the altar. He is the Lamb going to die for our sins. And so Mary doesn't understand that. Perhaps no one else really knows what he means. I mean, how could they? My hour has not yet come. What is he talking about? But Jesus was clear as to what he was doing. And I think it's just, it's so important to remember the mission of Jesus. Why did he come? He came above all else to die for our sins and to rise again so that our sins could be taken away and we could have a new relationship with God. It's so easy for us to, to be like Mary and to say, the wine is gone. <laughs> you know, to, to always be looking to Jesus as kind of personal problem fixer. You know, he's sort of out of our mind. And then, ah, the wine is gone. You know, the money is gone. My happiness is gone. You know, wh- whatever it is. And, and so we turn to, to Jesus in a kind of 911 kind of fashion. Help! Something's not working right. Could you please fix this? I'm praying. Get on the prayer chain. Get everyone praying. And, and then, you know, it's done, and then we go back to our lives. But, like, we forget Jesus came for our sins. We, we forget his mission. We, we don't relish and, and savor that the way that we should. Um, should we pray to God when the wine is out? Yes. You know, Every little problem in your life, bring to the Lord in prayer because the Lord sees and cares for all. He told us, cast your cares upon him. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We need to pray for daily bread. And so definitely, you know, pray for your bunion. Whatever it is that is bothering you, that is painful, that is frustrating, from money crises to family issues down to colds, we can bring all that before the Lord. But I, I, I think that the thing that I see here is the reminder of why Christ came, which is something that is so much greater than all of that. It is that he came to forgive us for our sins. And I think sometimes as Christians, it's, just as human beings, it's so easy to get wrapped up in our difficult personal circumstances. And we need to, you know, in the midst of all of our struggles of this life, which is full of struggles, we need to just constantly be taking a breath and saying, but in the final analysis, my sins are forgiven. I have been purchased from the slavery of sin, and I have been washed 
and brought into the family of God. I am now a prince or a princess of, of the king. Used to be an enemy and a slave, now washed and forgiven. And so whatever happens to me in this life, kind of so what at one level? Because I am Christ's. I, I, I think it's so hard to keep savoring our salvation. I keep forgetting about that for some reason. There's holes in my salvation savoring bucket. <laughs> and it just keeps leaking. It needs to be refilled as I remember for what Christ has done for me. You know, I, I, I'm saved. I, I keep being frustrated by the little pebbles of sand in my shoe that keep irritating me as I walk through this life. And I forget to look up and see that the continent-sized meteor of God's wrath that was bearing down on me has been diverted. You know, that I was going to be destroyed under God's righteous judgment, and Christ has diverted that. And so, yeah, these pebbles are annoying, but thank you, God, that heaven is my home because of what Christ did for me on the cross, that eternal life is mine because of what Christ did. When we get to heaven someday, when we finally stand in the new heavens and the new earth, when we see the pure holiness of God and how much He is worth, and we see with our own eyes the suffering of hell, which is the justice of God, and the realization that we have been saved from that purely through the sacrifice of God's precious Son for our sins, when we finally can see the gospel in all of its detail and significance, that will fuel an eternity of worship. We, we will never run out of fuel for praising Jesus for our salvation. The gospel will never get old in heaven, even though we sometimes get old here because we just can't see it all. And we will forever be praising God for what He's done for us. The cross will ever amaze us in eternity when we see what all this is. And so, be encouraged. Yeah, the wine runs out. There are frustrations. But people, let's remember why Jesus came and what we have in Him. And let's remember as we present Jesus to the world to not just present Him as, you know, wine fixer. Right? A lot of times I think the church, that's a temptation for us as Christians is we, we try to figure out, okay, I want people to know about Jesus. All right, here's what I'll do. Let me figure out what people need. Let me see if I can detect the mood of a particular cultural moment. And, and whatever people need will present Jesus as the guy who can meet that need. So it's like, are you, um, you know, are, are, you, are you poor? Well, Jesus, you know, uh, brings prosperity. Uh, the prosperity gospel. I was preached, uh, spoke about Gordon Conwell Seminary to a seminary class this week. Had a lot of fun doing that uh, with from from Mark, one of our elders, who's a teacher there. And and uh, I met a, a pastor from Nigeria, and he was telling me, you know, that the prosperity gospel is just rampant in sub-Saharan Africa, as people are in, in poverty and in, in difficulty. And the the message is, if you believe in Jesus and you trust in the Holy Spirit, He will lift you out of poverty. And so people are coming to God because they think God will make them wealthy and rich. Um, you know, we, we sometimes present Jesus as, you know, people today are, are, you know, we need significance. We need purpose. And we say, well, Jesus can give you the purpose-driven life. He can fill you with purpose. That's his main purpose for coming is to give you purpose. And it's like, does Jesus give us purpose and significance? Yes. The greatest purpose and significance ever. But he came to die on a cross. 
to remove my sins so that I could know the Father. That's the significance. And, and so we've got to keep his mission in mind. You know, Jesus can make me happy. Jesus can help me be wild at heart as a man and really discover my masculinity or, you know, Joe Olstein's thing, your best life now. Like, I don't want my best life now. I want that life in eternity. That's my hope. But, but you know, it's, it's presented that way. People are like, yeah, I want a good life now. Oh, Jesus can give it to you. And so we have to be really careful as we're presenting Jesus that we don't turn him into kind of whatever needs people see they have. That's what he's there to meet. We, we need to tell people, look, Jesus came fundamentally to meet a need that maybe you don't want to have to look at. You know, sometimes we have needs that we don't want to face. Sometimes our biggest needs are things we don't want to address. But the greatest need I have is that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I'm dislocated from God and under His judgment because of my rebellion, and I need grace. I need pardon. I need acquittal so that I can be reconciled to my Maker. And of course, in God is everything that we need, purpose and significance and joy and and life and provision eternally ultimately. But let's get the cart before the horse. And let's remember why Christ came. And so as we present Jesus, let us present the Jesus of the Gospels. You know, and, and sometimes the church, the church needs to say, hey, what to you and to me? This has nothing to do with us. You know, sometimes I think we, we think the church should do everything. The church needs to do this. The church needs to respond to every problem. Oh, the church should handle that. Shouldn't the church be addressing this? And, and okay, maybe, maybe Christians need to be doing these things. That's fine. But people, what is the one thing that the church has to give to the world that the UN can't give to the world? The gospel. You know? That's the one thing we can give that no one else can give. We have the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit. And that's the one thing the world needs more than anything. In addition to all the other things, we need all those other things too. But let us, as we think about the ministry of the church and our own personal ministries, let's not lose the central thing. Let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's remember the gospel and why Jesus came. So, problem number one, or panel number one, there's no wine. Why did Jesus talk to his mom that way? Because he was facing his, his destiny, his ministry, this is why he came, his hour, to die for our sins, to get to the root of the problem before he fixed all of the, you know, the uh, consequences of that root problem. Get to the root before you deal with the fruit. And so that's what he did. He went to the cross. He went right to the nerve, right to the core issue, not to the symptoms. But then he, he fills the wine problem anyway. I love that. <laughs> So after saying, look, what to you and to me, woman? And then, I don't know. It's tough to know how to interpret her response here where she says, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. It's tough to know if that's like a moment of faith or if that's, you know, a moment of motherly frustration. (sighs) Do whatever he tells you, you know. I I don't know. It's a little ambiguous. Um, Who knows? But whatever. Uh, The focus now turns to Jesus and his doing. 
And then he does this miracle. So this is the second panel of the story. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial watching, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the wine that had been, uh, water had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. So his miracle as he turns water into wine. Okay, there's the miracle. Well, I have another question here. So my first question is, why does Jesus talk to his mom this way? My second question is, why is his very first miracle creating massive amounts of booze? This is your debut. This is, you know, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And the first thing he sees fit to do with divine power is, is to bail out a party because they ran out of alcohol. Like, really? That's your first miracle? You know, like, what? I, I don't know. Maybe I, I, it, he could have done other things. Like, who knows? Like, raise the dead? <laughs> maybe he could have fed the hungry? Maybe he could have healed those who were sick and in need. What if for his first miracle, he got all the kids in Canaan together and surrounding towns who were sick, all the kids who were blind, all the kids who were crippled, all the kids who had deformities or other issues, and he healed them? Like, what if that was miracle number one? I'm like, okay, ah, I could see that. What if miracle number one was like, I don't know, going to the Sea of Galilee and and raising his hands and having the whole Sea of Galilee part or something while he shined and and lightning came out of him. I mean, that would tell people that you were the Messiah. But instead, his first miracle is making wine. And not just making wine. Let's do the math. A lot of wine. 20 to 30 uh, gallons in six stone jars, you know, Math, please, 120 to 180 gallons of wine. A beer keg, a full-size beer keg, holds about 15 gallons. I did have to Google that. I didn't know that. (laughs) So this is, it is a full-on 10 kegger. (laughs) Boom, 10 kegs. That's a lot of booze. And not only did he make wine for his first miracle, not only is it like gallons and gallons, but apparently it was super good. You know? So he is like the most acclaimed winemaker in the Bible, Jesus Christ. He, you know, he makes this wine and they sip it, and you know, and the master of the, the, uh, the ceremonies there is like, oh, this is the fine stuff. Usually the people bring out the cheap stuff later, but this is the good stuff, you know, well done. Uh, so this, this is crazy. Like, why does he do this? It's a strange first miracle. Well, what are we to do with this? Uh, you know, the way, the way I, one way we could approach this that I think might be helpful is to realize that in the Gospel of John, Jesus very commonly takes earthly physical things as symbols and pointers to heavenly and spiritual things. It's kind of a common teaching pattern. It's, it's in the parables, but especially in John, he's always doing this kind of thing, where he's taking something earthly and physical, and he's pointing to something spiritual. You know, Jesus says you have to be born again. He takes something physical to describe something spiritual. Uh, let me just give you one example. Look at John chapter 4. 
Uh, that's where Jesus speaks about at the woman at the well, and he uses water, well water, to describe the, the blessings of salvation and eternal life and the Holy Spirit that Jesus came to give. And the, the woman at the well, you know, he comes to her and he says, can I have a drink? And she says, look, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Our types don't talk to each other. Why'd you ask me for a drink? In John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now he's talking about salvation and the Holy Spirit and the blessings of knowing God. But she doesn't get it, verse 11. The woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Is there some water down there I didn't know about? What, What are you talking about? And so Jesus, verse 13, clarifies, everyone who drinks this water, this well water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Clearly, he's talking about something besides literal water. So, I think going back to this changing you know, water to wine, my, my suspicion is that there is something else being symbolized here by wine. So let's ask the question, what does wine symbolize in the Bible? And you look at the Old Testament, you look in the Scriptures, what is wine? Well, it has negative and positive connotations. Negatively, wine is associated with drunkenness, with debauchery. And so so there's dangers and there's warnings in the Old Testament about alcohol. But there's also lots of passages which speak about wine as a symbol of joy, abundance, prosperity, blessing. You know, we just got finished studying Deuteronomy. Remember in Deuteronomy, the blessings and curses? If Israel will obey the covenant, they will be blessed. If Israel disobeys the covenant, they will be cursed. And some of those blessings and curses are framed in terms of agricultural prosperity and wine and harvest. So if Israel obeys God, the blessing of wine and the blessing of productivity and harvest. If Israel disobeys God, they'll be cursed. So, so I think that what's happening here is that there's some symbolism being hinted at that something is happening, that a time of blessing is coming. Now, take it a step further. There are a number of Old Testament prophecies about the time of the Messiah's coming that depict it as a time of blessing with abundant wine at a feast. Look at your sermon notes. Take out this little insert in your bulletin if you got one of these. Jesus turns water to wine, this little white insert. Look at the top quote. This is Isaiah 25, the famous uh, feast prophecy from Isaiah. On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, uh, on the mountain of the Lord of hosts, uh, he'll make a feast for, uh, for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, a rich food filled with marrow and well-aged wine strained clear. And he will swallow up on this mountain the cover that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. So there's this prophecy of the mountain of the Lord with a great feast where death is destroyed and there's wine, good wine, abundant wine and feasting food. Joel 3, in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Amos 9, the time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows will overtake the one who reaps. So in other words, the guy who's harvesting will be harvesting so long that it'll be plowing season 
before he gets done harvesting, there'll be such an abundant crop. That's what that imagery means. And here we go. The treader of grapes uh, will overtake the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. That's a lot of wine. You know, where just you go out to the stream, and there's wine running down the stream instead of water. So much wine. Images, pictures, evoking ridiculous amounts of blessing in this time that's coming. And isn't it interesting, and I have a couple quotes from Matthew, how often Jesus, to describe the kingdom of God, describes it as a feast or as a wedding or something like that. You know, that second quote down there, Matthew 22, once more Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. And then, of course, Revelation 19 when Jesus comes again, it's described as the wedding banquet of the Lamb. So my, my hypothesis is that what's going on here with this miracle, the reason Jesus turned water to wine in such great abundance is that he was signaling that the promised, hoped-for age of the Messiah, the age when God's Holy Spirit would be poured out, the age when God's people's sins would be forgiven, the time when God would make a new covenant with his people, that all of those hopes that Israel had for God to intervene dramatically and save and bring blessing had begun, that it was launched, that it was initiated, that the, mess- the Messianic age has started with the coming of Jesus. We live right now in the Messianic age. And you say, well, why is the world still so messed up then? Well, one of the things we see is that, is that even though the Messiah came and the age of blessing began with Jesus, it's not yet completed until he comes again. So, so there's kind of a ramp up between his first and second comings. Salvation has come. It's already here, but it's not yet completed fully. We haven't experienced everything that God has for us yet. Um, our, our, you know, the judgment day has come. Christ died for us on the cross, and yet there's still a judgment day that's coming. But in all of that, we see that something has started, even if it's not fulfilled yet. The age of abundant wine has begun, even if it's not completed. How do we experience that in our lives as Christians? Does it mean when you become a Christian, God meets all of your physical and material needs, and that you have no more problems because you've entered the messianic age of abundant wine? No. Christians still go through problems. Some Christians prosper. Some struggle. We go through ups and downs. Life goes on in some ways the way we've known it. But what has changed is something inside of us, that we have received salvation the joy of our salvation. We've received the Holy Spirit. Like John told that woman, and uh, Jesus told the woman in John 4, streams of living water are bubbling up. There's something different in our souls. God has changed us and filled us, and, and we know him. And so whether we're, you know, bearish or bullish in our lives, no, no matter whether we're going through tough times or times of prosperity and blessing and health and family happiness, wherever we are, there is within us this new kingdom that's welling up as we, as we seek to know and love God. And so I just want to encourage you to keep, to keep looking to that filling up of the Holy Spirit in your life as the thing that keeps you going as a Christian, not to your outward circumstances. You know, as you go through trials in life and you pray for, for God to help you with things, you know, like we said before, pray. Pray for your... Pray for your, you know, your sciatica. Pray for 
you know, your job situation. Pray for your kids. Pray for all earthly things. But, but as you're praying for those things, also be praying, God, fill me up with the Holy Spirit through all of this so I can know you more. Because that's what the kingdom of God is all about, is that we get to know the king and see him face to face someday. And so as you're wrestling with, you know, making ends meet, you know, pray, Lord, help me make the mortgage payment this month. But God, whether I make the mortgage payment or default, Lord, please let me know you more through this. Lord, you know, help me with this wayward kid. I I just, you know, I, I can't sleep at night. God, bring my child back to you. But whether you do or don't, or whether it happens next week or takes 20 years, Lord Jesus, fill me up with greater faith in you. I want to know you more through this trial. God, help me with my emotional problems. Lord, I'm so tired of being depressed. I'm so tired of anxiety. You know, I'm so tired of mental illness. I'm so tired of the struggles I have. Lord, will you fix it and help me? And maybe he does or maybe he doesn't. I don't know. He does both. I've seen both. But Lord, whatever, whatever happens with my mind and my, my emotions, would you give me greater love for you through this? You know, praise God we're not saved based upon our emotional health. We're saved by the blood of the Lamb, whether we're in the pit or whether we're flying high. And so whatever I'm going through, I I want to always be thinking about the fact that my outward circumstances are not indicative of whether or not I'm in the kingdom of God. It is the role, is the Holy Spirit in me, and it's the joy of the Lord that's filling up. And so the Messianic age has begun. That's why, by the way, I'm still hopeful for southern New England. I'm still hopeful for the gospel here. I'm still hopeful for, for people to come to know Jesus. I'm still hopeful for new churches to be planted. I'm still hopeful for this church to be filled and to, to, to plant new churches that are filled and for the gospel to go out. Because people, there's plenty of wine. The Holy Spirit has not run out yet. The messianic age has not dried up. God is still creating spiritual life. And so as you go to these awkward Christmas gatherings where you're the Christian there and everyone else is drunk and it's tense, you know, don't give up. Just keep praying. Pray for your relatives. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for the people that you really you know, you just are going to try to go to the Christmas thing and be there for like one hour and get out as fast as you can. Like, pray for those people. Because God has enough grace and enough power. I think that's what Jesus did with this miracle. It was a signal that the time had come. The age of blessing had dawned, though it is not yet fulfilled completely. Okay, so quickly. The problem, no wine, shows us that Jesus was going to the cross the solution, the miracle of abundant wine shows us that uh, the age of blessing has come. Salvation is here. And then finally, the last thing is the response. And here's the question I have with the response. Why is it that it seems like so few people got to see what happened? You know, look at the last verse there, verse 11. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The the last question I have is, um, why does it seem like Jesus did this miracle in a kind of veiled way? 
You know, it's like the master of the ceremonies didn't know where the wine came from. The groom didn't know where the wine came from. Who knows if anyone else at the wedding knew where the wine came from? You know, who knows if his mother knew where the wine came from? Maybe she just said, do it, fix it, do whatever he tells you, and he did it. And she's like, oh, great, you fixed it. I mean, who, kn- who knows? The story doesn't say. It's, it seems to make an emphasis that just the servants and the disciples saw this and put their faith in him. There's a sense of veiledness. You, you know, the, the nature of the miracle is veiled. Jesus' comments are veiled. My time has not yet come. My hour is not here. Like, what does that mean? You know, so everything seems to be kind of hidden so it's there, but, but you can't quite see it. You know, it's like a shower door. And if you have those shower doors, you know, that they're not clear. They're not opaque. They're kind of like fuzzy. So you just kind of see an outline. Thank God. It's just kind of, you know, that's all you see. But that's how his miracles are. Like you see, but it's like, what? You know, I can't quite see what's going on there. His miracles and his teaching were always kind of veiled. He said to the woman, well, you know, if you want some real water, talk to me. He didn't say, look, lady. You think water's important. Let me give you the Holy Spirit. He didn't say it that way. It was kind of veiled, kind of hidden. Later on in John chapter 6, he says to the crowds, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. What? You know, veiled. And it says at that point, many of his disciples left him. He like shrank his church. And, you know, by saying crazy things like that. But it was, it was veiled, it's hidden. Why does he do it that way? And I think that what we'll see in John is that the veiled nature of his teaching and even the veiled nature of his miracles, the inconclusive nature of his miracles in some ways, forces people to a decision point. It sifts the crowd. Who's just there out of curiosity and who really believes? Jesus' parables and his miracles have a sifting function. Even the cross... What is the high point of why Jesus came? It's the cross. Remember, we talked about that. His hour had not yet come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His hour is finally coming. And he goes to the cross and he dies. And so the high point of his ministry is the cross. But like, what kind of high point is that? That's the low point. It's veiled. You look at the cross and you go, really? And and so you can look at the cross and it's easy to dismiss it. They dismissed it in Jesus' day. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. A crucified Messiah? Mm -mm. You know, it was foolishness to the the Greeks and the Romans. A king who's on a cross, that's the place of no power, not the place of great power and honor. No, it doesn't work. The cross can be dismissed today. You know, people today say, dying for sins? What do you mean sins? You're okay, I'm okay, there is no right and wrong except what we invent for ourselves. You know, people today say, you know, I, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I don't believe a God who would demand a blood sacrifice. That's so primitive. It sounds like child abuse. I mean, it just doesn't fit the way people think today. And so the cross is always offensive to every age and every culture. There's always a reason why any person in any culture can look to the cross and say, that's silly. That doesn't make sense. But to others, we see the cross and the light goes on. And we say, that is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. That God would die for me so that I could be forgiven and brought into a relationship with my maker. It's for us, the cross is the most amazing, beautiful thing I've ever seen. So when you see the cross of Jesus, what do you see 
What does it look like to you? Is it strange, opaque, silly, offensive? Or is it the most wonderful thing you've ever heard? Do you have faith or not? There is coming a day when Christ will return, and on that day it will no longer be veiled. On that day he will come, he said, like lightning flashing from one end of the world to the other. Everyone will see it. On the day when Christ returns, uh, it, it will not be ambiguous. On that day, all skepticism will poof like a dream. All the world will know that Christ is Lord. On that day, there will be no mistaking. But on that day, it will also be too late. Today is the day. When you look to the cross, what do you see? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you because you are the one who set your face to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you never lost sight of your mission, even though we do. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved us and died for us and that we're yours. Thank you, Jesus, that this is the age of blessing. Thank you for the joy you've put in our hearts as we struggle with all kinds of things, Lord. We're amazed that we still have faith that the Holy Spirit is still within us. Thank you, Lord, that we're saved by your grace and not by anything that we bring to the table. And Lord, thank you for giving us eyes to see. We pray that you would give eyes for many to see. Lord, we know that someday you are coming, and on that day the great shout will go out. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Until that day, Lord, we pray that your gospel would uh, reveal itself to many people the many eyes would see. We pray especially for the South Shore of New England, Lord. We pray for people who live around us in these towns. We pray for our friends, our loved ones, people we've got to go to, uh, Christmas parties and gatherings, Lord. We just pray, let us be a light for the gospel. Lord, we pray that people would come to the Christmas Eve service Saturday night. We pray, Lord, that you give us opportunities to speak about you and, and to be a difference for the gospel. Oh, Lord, we pray. Give the people around us eyes to see that the cross is the answer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.